Why did Twitter ban Donald Trump and when did Matt Taibbi become a conservative? And is Ron DeSantis peaking too soon? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry and I'm joined as always by the Right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Philip Phil Klein, and the sage of authenticity woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are The Fire, ExpressVPN, and Ball and Branch Sheets. More about all of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. And before we do anything else, here's a message from our friends at the fire. You know, only one in three Americans believe we can fully exercise our free speech rights. That's why fire is stepping up to protect freedom of expression for all Americans, no matter where you're from or what you believe. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE, knows free speech makes free people. FIRE will always be a principled, nonpartisan, nonprofit defender of your rights. Join the fight for free speech at www.thefire.org. Please check it out. Really important organization and a really important cause that we talk about a lot on this podcast. And that's a, that's called a segue, Jim. I don't know if you're familiar in the podcasting and the uh, video business. That is a segue to our first topic, which is the, the ongoing release of the Twitter files. And the, the latest, most notable batch came from Bari Weiss, her second bite at the apple on the internal deliberations surrounding the uh, suspension, permanent suspension of Donald Trump's accounts. Notable tidbits here. You had a, a Twitter employee from China saying, you know what, I, I think censorship's not so great. You know, may, maybe it's just me, you know, having lived in China, but I, I, I've seen how this corrupts public discourse. Maybe we shouldn't do it. And then you have this back and forth like, well, no one can uh, come up with any reason why these these latest two Trump tweets. And this was after January 6th. And he said, you know, he was appreciated 75 million patriotic Americans voting for him and he wasn't going to show up for the inauguration. And and a lot of people just they didn't like it. You know, they're alarmed by Trump, understandably. So they wanted to to uh, define these things as a, a violation, but uh, they couldn't. But then they they suspended him anyway. What do you make of it? So what we're seeing out of these Twitter files or these series of tweets that are being put out by uh, the Washington Post called them conservative journalists. And I don't think that's really the right way to, uh, to characterize Tabi or Barry Weiss. Non-orthodox, non-establishment, non-democratic machine journalists, perhaps. Um, look, on the one hand, it's good to see this. On the other hand, I don't think we're necessarily stunned to find out that at the highest levels of Twitter, the standards of what was permitted and what was not was permitted was arbitrary, ad hoc, that there was a ludicrous double standard, mm-hmm. and that this was a bubble of very left-wing individuals who, uh, other than this you know, Chinese uh, you know, person who's experienced censorship in China saying, hey, this, this never ends well. This is you know, uh, a little more complicated than you want it to be. I, I kind of feel like of all the decisions Twitter made, the decision to look at J- January 6th and see what tweet, Trump was tweeting and say, nope, well, this is too much. Shut it down. This is uh, this is just a way in which he's getting people more riled up. There's more risk mm-hmm. of violence. I think it's one of the more defensible decisions they've made. I think the, the bigger question is like, when Trump tweets something out there, yeah, there is a chance that it's going to pour gasoline on the fire metaphorically. When, you know... Ishkabibble94321 says, you know, Trump rocks and Democrats suck, and they shut him down. That strikes me as a much more um, 
much more pro- problematic case because Ishkabibble two three four one doesn't have any much you know leverage over it. People were going to object to Trump uh, having his account uh, uh, shut down, and I note that you know Elon Musk brought it back, and Donald Trump has not gone down, has not come back yet, you know, yet, and shows yeah. no signs of doing so. Yeah. So, Jim, do do you think that the Trump ban was effective? Because I have to say, in what you're just uh, said a minute ago, in, in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, I was like, okay, you know, he's not on Twitter. That's probably not sustainable and it's a mistake. You have these other dictators on, you know, and, and Barry Weiss, uh, Barry Weiss score points with, you know, you, you could be a prime minister somewhere in South Asia and call for literally like murdering people, <laughs> you know, like yeah. ethnic cleansing. Yeah. And they might might delete your tweet, but you're, you don't end up suspended from Twitter. But anyway, it, when Trump was off, it did feel as though it lowered the temperature. But, you know, uh, over the, the, um, <clears throat> stretch of time here, it would have been, you know, Trump has discredited himself with his truth social post. And to the extent they would have been a higher profile on Twitter, it probably would have hurt him more. So th- they they think they're they're doing the country a great favor and hurting Trump when actually the act of censorship may have, to a certain extent, backfired. Yeah, I was going to say, the, one of the big problems with Twitter from the beginning has been that the terms of what would get your account suspended temporarily or permanently was always in this very nebulous language. It wasn't really clear of, you know, well, is it, you know, does it have to be explicitly threatening or does it have to make someone else feel threatened? And what kind of information qualifies as doxing, et cetera? If you have clear less, you know, clear uh, criteria, if you have a clear decision-making process, and if you have a clear appeals process, there would be much less, you know, uh, consternation and people upset about this. The other thing, which I think is a big part of this story, Twitter, when it was formed, did not say we are a progressive co- company with progressive values, and we're really only interested in helping progressives talk to other progressives. No, the, the Twitter message is we're connecting the world. You know, left, right, center, whatever you want to be, you can come onto Twitter and talk to anybody. And then, you know, bit by bit, year by year, they ratcheted up what kind of uh, how eagerly they would shut down a conservative for what struck me in many cases as fairly innocuous speech, or no different than all the other obnoxious stuff, and. We can all remember back in 2015, 2016, I don't know about you guys, I got plenty of, you know, Trump's going to put you in the ovens and Jews are parasites on society and stuff like that. And I didn't see those accounts getting suspended super quick. So it really became very clear that the Twitter management was playing favorites about who was going to be shut down and who wasn't. So that was the objection. It was this, you know, like, no, I think there are very few people who would look at uh, child pornography or neo-Nazis or something like that and say, no, you absolutely positively have to allow those Mm -hmm. people to do that kind of stuff. The question is, where do you want to draw the line? And it was always very, Twitter was always very, uh, wanted to hide the ball on that. They didn't want you to know precisely where the line was uh, because I think they wanted that kind of lever- of le- um, flexibility that mm-hmm. an obnoxious left-wing person would not necessarily get uh, shut down, but that even a figure like Glenn Reynolds could get shut down because he tweeted something that somebody else deemed to be threatening, even though there was, you know, the idea of Glenn Reynolds, uh, you know, becoming some axe murderer or something is about as absurd as it gets. Yeah. So th- there was um, the guy who's, I can't say his name. I've never heard it spoken, but the guy who became the CEO after Jack Dorsey, and by the way, Jack Dorsey, you know, he, he comes out pretty well from all this. Like he, he's uh, while, while all these ridiculous people are grappling with who just, to suspend and why and, and how they're going to do their shadow banning. He's always like off at a beach somewhere, you know, strolling with a, with a model <laughs> on the sand and has no idea what's being, being done at his company. Um, but uh, th- this new CEO, the day after they did Trump was like, okay, let, let's, let's have a, a talk because we've stretched content moderation to the, the limit here. And 
Phil, one of the things that's been notable to me, this guy, Yoel Roth, who is the head of trust and, and safety, who now has apparently had to leave his home because he's getting threatened. We don't want anyone to get uh, to get threatened. But everything he, he wrote, even when he wasn't a- actively advocating for censorship or just considering the issue, was ridiculous, was completely ridiculous. And someone like that, you know, he's a product now of our culture. It's not as though he emerged from the, the womb thinking and talking this way. He was made, you know, by our, our university system, education system, and then by this whole uh, bureaucracy and uh, archipelago of apparatchiks we, we have at companies like this, that uh, where you, you're benefited by talking and thinking this way, and you're, you're threatened if you don't. And that's that's one of the big promises of what Musk is is about here is is perhaps he he opens up some some space again where people like that don't benefit and rise in these companies. Yeah, and I, I think the the big problem is and the central problem facing Twitter and other social media companies is that once you make the decision to moderate content beyond very specific things. If you don't agree, if you sort of abandon the idea of having open, an open speech platform, once you go down that path, you're never going to come up with a system that's consistent and that is not uh, based on the sort of biases of the people who are in charge of implementing these policies. Um, I, I remember um, years ago, there was this issue with Facebook where they had made a big deal about how they're enforcing all these community standards. And during one of the conflicts between um, Israel and Hamas, um, there was this page, Death to Zionist Baby Killer Israeli Jews. And somebody I know complained about it. And they said, got a response saying that, you know, the page death to we reviewed death to Zionist baby killer Israeli Jews, and it doesn't meet, um, doesn't uh, violate our community standards. Mm-hmm. It's not a violation. <laughs> and like, it's sort of like in a sort of form robotic response. And I reported on this and, you know, just to point out how more, how ridiculous it is than to necessarily call for removing it, but they removed it. But then there were all these other pages calling for the death to Israel with like Netanyahu, like a vampire and stuff. And those were left on. And the, the rationale they gave me was, well, calling death to Israel, it's like a political position, which is different than calling for death to Israeli Jews, as if there would really be a distinction, like what happens to the Jews in Israel mm-hmm. and Israel dies. Um, but you get into these ridiculous things where you say, we, well, first you say we don't remove world leaders, then you remove Trump, but you keep Ayatollah on, you know, on who's literally during the Israel conflict with Hamas is literally signaling to Hamas like that they should keep firing rockets at Israel through the Twitter platform. Like there's nothing more direct than that. And he's able to stay up there. So I think that you kind of have to have it one way or another, like unless it's a very specific threat you know, I'm going to go after Jim Garrity on this date and like, here's his address. Let's get a mob together and make sure we like break into his house and get him over this blog post that he wrote. 
By the way, way if you do that, I'm going to be prepared. <laughs> Don't tell me when you're coming. Right. But to me, like short of that, we can't re- you once you go down the path of saying, well, this is offensive or this is mean or nasty. So you're kicked off. You really are just asking for just a completely arbitrary system. Yeah, uh, well, what they went to, Phil, was this notion of civic integrity, which is was very vague. You know, it's not incitement or anything like that. You're just sort of harmful to the body politic, which wouldn't apply to the Ayatollah, you know, because he's over there in Iran, but would apply supposedly to, you know, a domestic player like like Trump. So, so Charlie, we've obviously talked a lot about Twitter, as everyone has over the last um, two months. If, if nothing else, Elon Musk has gotten more attention um, for the platform. But am I wrong in thinking now, you know, I, I said a couple of weeks ago, I wish he was just doing rockets still. You know, Twitter's not as important as, you know, drilling holes or building transformative electric cars or, or trying to land a man on Mars, whatever he wants to eventually do. But this is really, you know, it, it's, it's taking on the trappings of a really important um, front in the, the culture war. You know, it's kind of like the, the Spanish Civil War before uh, World War II, this kind of proxy a battle is that a uh, overly inflated way to look at it? I don't think so. I think it would be if you were limiting its importance to Twitter itself, which, as I said last time, looms large in our imaginations because the industry in which we work is hung upon Twitter's hooks. But in the broad American context, it's not that important. But people in Silicon Valley and elsewhere will presumably be watching what's happening at Twitter, and I think they will notice two things. The first is that the vast majority of consumers do not actually think like Ewell Roth thinks. I wrote a piece on this over the weekend. I don't want government regulation of Twitter, and I don't want government regulation of the internet. I don't want the moderators at Twitter or elsewhere to be bound by federal law. I think doing so would be in violation of the First Amendment too. But as a consumer, I love that that guy's been fired. I'd fire anyone who thinks like that at any company that has anything to do with content moderation, be it Twitter or Spotify or Netflix or wherever else. As a consumer, I want the social media platforms or content farms that I use or subscribe to, to be staffed by people who like speech and like content. It's bizarre that so many of these institutions have been taken over by people who have this extraordinarily broad conception of safety, so broad that it magically lines up with their own narrow and unpopular progressivism. And presumably, there are businesses in the United States who are in the same position who will be looking at this and saying, okay, the behavior that we are seeing in these leaks was unacceptable, and there's no need for us to put up with it here either. The second reason that it matters, as I've said before on this podcast, is that quite a lot of big companies in Silicon Valley, including some that predate Twitter and are much more mainstream, uh, much more widely used, especially at the corporate level, are going to notice that the parade of horribles that was proposed when Musk cut 80 or 90% of Twitter's workforce simply did not come to fruition. 
Now, that is not to say that Trump isn't going to have to hire more engineers. It's not to say that Twitter could indefinitely exist on a skeleton crew. But it is to say that there is no great need at any of these institutions to preserve the status quo if the status quo is causing problems. And it was not the case that the only problem at Twitter was overzealous content moderation. There seemed to have been a number of people there who just didn't do a great deal. Mm -hmm. The famous story, perhaps apocryphal, of Steve Jobs walking into the elevator, asking the person in there what they did, and then firing them if they couldn't present a plausible answer within 30 seconds, may sound harsh to the average person's ears. But I would rather have that if I were in charge of a large tech company than I would all sorts of departments full of people whose jobs could not be described to me. And Silicon Valley has unfortunately come to resemble uh, the latter scenario far more than the former. It is simply not that lean anymore. It is simply not that piratical And I am convinced that there will be a good number of companies, not just in Silicon Valley, who are going to look at this and say, well, actually, we don't need as many people. Uh, We don't need people who refuse to work or who are lazy. And perhaps we don't need to be taken over by employees who talk like this and think like this and spend all of their time causing trouble and attempting to politicize the workplace. And if we get rid of them, our company won't collapse. Yeah, Charlie. So we were talking about this on offline the other day. So I have a very smart friend who's created a lot of new uh, tech businesses and, and sold them. And, and he just said out of curiosity, he sat down for an hour with Twitter's financials. And he thinks, you know, if assuming that the company can you know, stay basically on the footing it is now with many, many fewer employees, that, that Musk has a real shot to make, make this uh, a profitable endeavor. So, Jim, we had this tweet from Elon Musk the other day. My pronouns are prosecute slash Fauci. This was Trump level trolling, an amusing tweet, created the outrage it was meant to. Really, a Trump level tweet, Trump Trump in his prime kind of tweet. And in in some of the reaction to this, we had an, an Atlantic piece arguing that Elon Musk is a far right political activist. I wrote this about this in a column today. The only thing the piece didn't prove was that Trump is far right or that he's a political activist. But this gets to the phenomenon you were mentioning earlier with Weiss and Taibbi. If you're just won't accept certain orthodoxies and trample on certain pieties, you're coded as a conservative or even far right, when that clearly is not the definition of Musk, whatever he is. Yeah, like you know, is he is he really far right if he's on such a you know fun footsy relationship with say the Chinese government or something like that? Um, I don't think there's any doubt that at this particularly at this moment, Elon Musk is getting great joy out of tipping every sacred cow that the left has uh, that he enjoys, like. There, there is a certain freedom that comes from being either the world's richest man or second richest man. Um, and he has, you know, perfected the art of becoming the main character on Twitter on any given day. 
a little while ago, there was that joke that, you know, every day Twitter has a main character and your goal in life is to not be that character. That inevitably somebody was saying something that was either controversial or stupid and lots of other people on Twitter were dunking on that person and in some cases trying to get that person canceled or fired or something like that. And Elon Musk is a guy who's uncancelable. He's on, you can't, nobody's going to, in any position to fire him. He's going to go off and uh, enjoy being the richest man in the world or second richest man in the world or whatever he is. And he's going to enjoy, you know, putting his thumb in the eye and jumping on every last nerve of every hypersensitive progressive. And he's going to enjoy it every step of the way. Um, I kind of feel like Elon Musk has kind of displaced Donald Trump as the preeminent boogeyman or, or, or bogeyman of the, of the left that, that now they used to worry about what Trump was doing all day. Now I think people like, you know, sit around and hang out on Twitter worried about what Elon Musk is doing all day. Yeah. Just to interject a quick fact, according to the Forbes real time billionaires list, Elon Musk is second. He only has 180 billion now. Yeah, there's, there's, there's someone on, on Twitter the other day who was making a big deal that, oh, he's now slipped to the second, used to be, before he got Twitter, the, the richest man in the United States, now he's the second. But Charlie, Jim's point is a segue to the exit question, a couple ifs embedded in here. If Elon Musk were born in the United States, if he had political interest, and if you were being included in these early Republican nomination polls, we're going to discuss one in a minute, he would be polling above 20%. Right now, yes or no? Yes, he would. And this would be an indication of frivolousness within the Republican primary voting bloc and an unwillingness to distinguish between entertainers and politicians. Phil Klein, above 20? No, I think he'd be below 20. Well, like 15? Single digits. 15? Below 10? Below 10. Below 10? Jim Garrity. I, I think he would be above 20. I just, the question is, why would he want to step down into the presidency? <laughs> He'd definitely be above 20. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor this episode, ExpressVPN. Charlie Cook. Indeed, ExpressVPN, which I use myself. And frankly, it's shocking to me that in the year 2022, everyone hasn't installed ExpressVPN on their devices, especially their kids' devices. You wouldn't let your kids walk from home without telling them not to talk to strangers or get into windowless vans. So why would you let them go online without using ExpressVPN? And why would you go online yourself without using ExpressVPN? Now, you might be wondering, what is ExpressVPN? Why do I need ExpressVPN? Well, Every device, whether it's a phone or a computer or a tablet, if it has a connection to the internet, it has a unique IP address, or if it doesn't, your house does, and your device absorbs that. And an IP address is like an internet phone number, which, if you track it over time, can reveal personal information about you, including where you live. It's pretty simple for strangers to find your IP address. If you've ever clicked on a sketchy link or you've opened an email with a bugged image, or frankly, you've been to even a reputable website, your IP address could have been exposed. And there are unfortunately creepy people out there who will try and physically track you down, track your kids down using their IP address. And that's where ExpressVPN comes in. ExpressVPN, it's an app, you install it on the phone or the computer, or even at your uh, router level, if you have the right one, which hides your real IP address and replaces it with a dummy one, which keeps you safe and 
private. In other words, rather than your house being the IP address that is used to visit a given website, ExpressVPNs is in place. And all you need to do to set that up is download the ExpressVPN app on your phone or your computer. You hit one button to turn it on and you're protected. Even kids can use it. And the cool part is that ExpressVPN will let you choose where you want your IP address to look uh, as if it's coming from, which has other benefits, uh, including geofencing. So all you need to do to get ExpressVPN and protect your family is to go to expressvpn.com slash editors. If you use that editors link, you'll get three months extra free. That's ExpressVPN, which is expressvpn.com slash editors to learn more. Thank you very much, Charlie. So, Phil, we had an eye-popping poll just dropped this morning. We're recording Tuesday morning, as is our custom. DeSantis 56, Trump 33 nationally. This totally reverses what what had been the situation uh, not too long ago where Trump had been above 50. He dropped a little bit in national polling. He had been just you know in the high 40s, but still double-digit, comfortable lead over DeSantis. Obviously, this polling is insanely premature, but you you have DeSantis now in the dominant position. And then also, since we're talking about premature polls, this this poll had a general election matchup, had Biden beating Trump by seven, 47 to 40, and had DeSantis beating Biden 47 to 43. Yeah, so not only is it early, of course, we don't have a national primary, but a series of state primaries uh, and and disproportionately influential early state primaries that tend to influence the the later outcomes. So it's certainly early. Um, With that said, the negative aspect of Trump losing ground is that he has universal name recognition. You can't have higher name recognition in politics than Donald Trump does. Everyone knows who he is, what he's about. And so the fact that you drop off to 33% uh, suggests that you, you know, it's hard to, to kind of recover because it's not as if people are going to learn more stuff about you. Um, with regard to Ron DeSantis, people are going to learn more about him and get to know him. That could mean that he'll tank as more information becomes known as we see how he performs Mm -hmm. as a presidential candidate, as he takes more, uh, hits, uh, more oppo comes out. Uh, but it's, it's usually a bad sign. Certainly when it comes to, um, typically when somebody's up for reelection, they start pulling below 50%, you start to get worried because of that fact. And so he's down at 33%. Now, with that said, we'll see how crowded the primary is. If you have over 30% of the vote, that could be enough to win uh, in a crowded enough primary in early primary states and then force other candidates to drop out. So, Phil, do you take it as a given that Trump has a floor? I don't take it as a given. I mean, he certainly does have some sort of floor, but we don't know. Um, It has in 2015. It seemed like his floor was around 
he was pretty steady at around 20 to 25% before uh, the the primary started where he started creeping up and people started dropping out and and he gained traction as he picked up some wins. Um, but I don't know. I'd say, I mean, normally in the stock market, they talk about various resistance levels, um, you know, where a stock will crash for a while, then it'll stay at a level and it, it's sort of, well, is this the bottom? Um, can it go lower? I think he's probably now testing a kind of resistance level at around 30 mm-hmm. points. Can he go below 30? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I would say it says, it, along with other information, plus the the behavior of Trump, uh, plus sort of anecdotal conversations and so forth, all of those are, are um, consistent and tell a story of Trump losing ground. That doesn't mean he can't still be the nominee, but I think... You know, the numbers themselves, I wouldn't read much into other than it's another data point suggesting he has waning support. Yeah. So, Charlie, we asked an exit question a couple of weeks ago, and the two of us answered in the the affirmative. I I forget the the others, but uh, maybe it was unanimous. I forget. But uh, had we experienced peak Trump and this this would be a big piece of evidence that we have. Um, but you look at what happened since the announcement. He gives a speech that announced that speech that is itself kind of a yawner and a flop. Then the next week he has a, a dinner with a, a famous anti-Semite and an obscure anti-Semite. Then it wasn't quite as big a deal, but he had some Q- QAnon person down there at Mar-a-Lago. Then his hand-picked candidate who wouldn't have run without his urging, Herschel Walker, goes down, putting an exclamation point on the Republican disappointment in the midterms, uh, f- for which he bears a lot of responsibility. And here his his polls have been sagging. And it's easy to see how DeSantis could go down from 56. He, he's not, you know, I'd be shocked if he, if he uh, just wins the nomination going away without any uh, hiccups along along the way. There, there always are. But it's it's a little harder to see what Trump would do to go up because this, this point that Phil was just making about he has a universal name recognition. Everyone knows him. He's a totally known quantity. And once you're down there, what, what's going to get people to give you a second look? Yes, I think Phil's absolutely right. I think that this poll is really bad for Trump and TBD for DeSantis. The Trump numbers, given his name recognition, the fact that he was already the nominee twice, president for four years, look somewhat disastrous. The DeSantis numbers might be a sign that he is the presumptive frontrunner and will win the nomination, as was the case for George W. Bush in 1998 and onwards. Or it might be a sign that he is the presumptive front runner, and then will crash and burn, as was the case for Jeb Bush in 2015-16. DeSantis is obviously going to be the person that the vast majority of voters in Republican primaries name, if not Trump, because he is the most famous of the candidates who are likely to run, and he just won a 20-point victory in Florida. As Phil says, there's a great deal of time left to go. Maybe he'll crash and burn. Maybe he'll withstand a stronger than expected challenge from someone else. That is all unknown. The Trump number, though, is absolutely uh, 
telling. And I think perhaps the most important other number in that poll is that Trump is losing to Biden by was mm-hmm. it seven points. Yep. Now that matters too, because Republicans are going to want to win in 2024. When we were seeing polls a few months ago that showed Trump beating Biden by one or two points, it might have been tempting for Republican primary voters who were getting tired of Trump to say, ah, but look, he does look as if he could do it again. If the polls start to show Trump losing badly to Biden, then that will in turn feed into the number of Republicans Mm -hmm. who tell pollsters they want Trump to run again. So we could be seeing something of a symbiosis between those two. Yeah. So, Jim, Trump is probably in in his range there, 40 to 46 percent, right? What he got, 46.8 in in 2020? Uh, clearly a, a ceiling of, of 47 that you would assume is is lower now, <laughs> given everything that's transpired. And my friend John Carlos Sopo tweeted about this poll. Wow, look at that. DeSantis is actually ahead of, of Biden in the, the popular vote. Wouldn't it be great to, to think about winning the presidency again without having to narrowly do it via the Electoral College, but actually getting more votes than the other side as well? Yeah, that would sound terrific. But uh, I, I saw that and I had that similar, you know, I think it was uh, Pradeep, our contributor, who said, well, this guarantees Demo- that Republicans will nominate Trump. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, we never do it the easy way. We always have to do this the hardest way. But I think um, what we are seeing, you know, mounting evidence year by year, Trump makes his decisions based on impulses. He does not think too far ahead. He does not look around the corner. He doesn't spend a lot of time worrying about how things could go wrong. And I think as much as people, well, a whole bunch of people want to believe that he's some, you know, always playing nine level chess and, you know, plans within plans. I think he just got really lucky in 2016. You know, the ball bounced his way against a phenomenally unpopular uh, Democratic opponent. Reality caught up with him in 2018 and 2020 and his candidates who he endorsed in 2022. And so 2022 midterms happen. They don't go particularly well for Republicans at all. And he makes a decision one week after the election. I'm going to announce I'm running for president. Mm-hmm. Well, why announce so early? Well, one yeah. thing is, I, I would believe actually a big reason is boredom. I think Trump got tired, was frustrated that he was not the center of attention and wanted to jump back into it. But the other, I guess, strategy is, well, you force other people to either get in or yeah. get out. Scare them out. We haven't seen anybody announcing since Trump's announcement. Well, I'm definitely running or I'm definitely not running. So it didn't create all that pressure on other Republicans to either get in or get out. Mm-hmm. And I think it was media. I did a good item where he pointed out that Trump hasn't done any events since he made that announcement. He's had, you know, the, the getting together with Fuentes and Kanye and all kinds of other right. disaster, you know, calling for terminating the constitution. He's done all kinds of, you know, really self-destructive. I things. forgot about the suspending the constitution. <laughs> right. Isn't it, isn't it set, kind of say something about Trump that he could do that. And within a week or two, <laughs> I, 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 I was trying to come up with one of the other items. I went the but this whole weekend he's been ranting about anything and everything on truth social this is what trump wants to do he doesn't actually want to be president the presidency's work 
You got to do a lot of meetings no, and listen to boring know. stuff. He How wants to watch cable news and rant on social media that people aren't saying nice things about him. And but you know what? But, he never becomes president. He can keep Jim, doing that. But Jim, that's that's what he did as president. He, he it didn't being I president didn't stop him from doing that. Yeah, but now he's got more time to do that. The thing that's interesting to me is a few weeks ago we had sort of debated the pros cons of from DeSantis of Trump having to announce early and and DeSantis just having been reelected, not being able to announce right away. But um, right now, if you're DeSantis, it can't like clearly it's worked a lot better out that you're taking your time and announcing and Trump is just announced to just keep staking, stepping on rakes. (laughs) I mean, yeah. So when when we were when we first got word that Trump might seriously announce early, and we're kind of parsing that, I remember saying the the worst scenario for Trump is that he got in and was, was stagnant or, or went down, and it was you know a green light for everyone else because it sh- would would show his um, th- that that it would show weakness as opposed to waiting. Even if his polls were sagging, you still would have that in the back of your mind. Well, maybe he, when he gets in, his polls are going to go up. Well, he has gotten in, and his polls have gone down. Charlie Cook, X, a question to you. Our friend and colleague Dan McLaughlin wrote a post about this the the other day. We had a piece at the New Republic, the first, and what may be a series. We'll we'll see. That's what I'm going to ask about. But but making the liberal case for Republicans nominating Trump because he can't win, and re- Republicans suffering a, a debacle. And a 2024 general election would finally cleanse the Republican Party of this this madness and make it a more reasonable party. So liberals should be rooting for Trump. There will be a significant segment of progressive opinion making that kind of case prior to 2024, or did they learn their lesson in 2016? They didn't learn their lesson, and they shouldn't be doing it because Trump tried to stage a coup in 2020 and is still talking about suspending the Constitution and holding a do-over. They will do it because they will think, and they won't be necessarily wrong here, that it will put the Republican Party into disarray and hand them the White House for another four years. Rich, before I relinquish my time on the floor, can I just make one more point about Trump and his having announced early? Yep. Can any of you think of a mistake that Ron DeSantis has made since election night? No. He hasn't had a lot of opportunity, though, right, to make mistakes. Uh, I mean, Trump makes the opportunities to make mistakes, but he's just been quiet nationally, right? Can anyone think of anything that Ron DeSantis has done since election night? Can any of you name it? (laughs) He gave a nice victory speech. I asked this. I asked this. And he, Seriously, and he blew off the Trump what branch. about Greg Abbott? What about Greg Abbott? Has he, has he done anything? Glenn Youngkin? Can you name a mistake they've made or something they've done? No. See, this is the... We're all worried we're difference. walking into a trap here. No. <laughs> we're worried there's no, a this question is, here. <laughs> no, but this is, this is something that I've begun to notice, that there is just this profound difference between the other potential candidates... And Trump, in this regard, that they pick the fights that they want when they want them for a reason. Mm -hmm. And Trump doesn't. And I am more convinced than ever that this was a mistake on Trump's part to declare for president. And that it's going to help the people who are running against him. Because the people who are running against him are quietly getting on with their jobs. 
And when you quietly get on with their jobs, when you don't make public mistakes, when you aren't really seen doing anything until you want to be seen doing anything, your numbers go up. Mm-hmm. And when you have to keep yourself in the cycle, because otherwise it looks a little bit odd, Trump declared, then he did what? Then the opportunity for your numbers to go down mm-hmm. are considerable. So, so um, Jim, you, you were uh, asked this question of Charlie once, I think, or maybe it was, I forget, was it about Trump that I asked this question or about Biden? But um, you are, um, you and Kellyanne are, are, are going into Trump to brief, brief him today at, at Mar-a-Lago. You're going to break the very bad news about this USA Today Suffolk poll. <clears throat> you're not going to present him with any uh, uh, fake polls that, that might be more pleasing to him. And you're going to give him advice on how to uh, climb out of this hole, what is it? Assuming a brain transplant is not an option and I can't reprogram Donald Trump to have a completely different personality, set of values, set of priorities, anti-narcissistic viewpoint, et cetera. Assuming I can't give him, you know, completely transform his personality. I say to him, look, why do you want a second term? And why, what can you do for people, for the American people in a second term? And between now and the first primary, I don't want you to say a single thing about 2020. I don't want you to say a single thing about, if you ever say the words, I am a victim, I'm walking out of here. If you ever say the words, poor me, if you ever say anything like that somehow the world is unfair to you, billionaire living in Mar-a-Lago, then I never want, you know, then never put aside that. From now until the first primary, you're going to focus entirely on what you can do to help people in America in a second term, and maybe that'll turn mm-hmm. some stuff around. Yeah, obviously this would be a, there'd be a rapid end to your career as a Trump advisor, yeah. but yeah, I mean it, he, it's a good case to to make, and he did some of this in the announcement. You know, my record was better than this guy's record, and hey, let's 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 do it do it again or do something. Better, but obviously he's never going to give up the grievance. I realize now that I got sidetracked by Charlie's additional point and got uh, uh, forgot about the exit question, which I'm going to come back to to Phil and then to to Jim on as well. So Phil, balance of liberal progressive opinion will be wow. We we really hope Trump Trump wins the nomination. I think I think so. I mean there was a piece by Michael Tomaski making that argument that we hope Trump wins the uh, primary because he'll be easier to beat. Um, and I, I mean, I think that the, the absolute dream, if you're a leftist is of course that Trump loses to DeSantis and then, um, claims the Republican primary was stolen and he's going to form his own party and basically either disillusions people or uh, siphons off enough votes, uh, to allow, uh, the Democrat, you know, whether it's Biden or Harris or somebody else to win. I think that's probably the big dream. No, I think the nightmare situation is that Trump wins the primary. I think that there is now more of a downside to Trump being the nominee than there is to Trump trying to sabotage the real nominee. And I think Georgia was a good example of that with Brian Kemp. I think you lose more by having Mm -hmm. Trump there than you do by Trump ranting and putting off some people who were within his coalition. So, I, yeah, I think, Phil, that your scenario that we, we discussed several months ago that we're all kind of incredulous, you're like, the best scenario is Trump gets in and gets beaten, you know, because then he really goes away rather than just having him not running and sort of lurking out there. And I think what's happened last several weeks lends more credence to that theory than, than I thought at the time. So this, this is a mea culpa, <laughs> yeah. Phil. 
I mean, so it's so, rare, so I'll take it, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, Jim, Jim Garrity, where the bal- where will the balance of progressive opinion be on from Trump? now until the end of the Republican presidential primary of twenty twenty four? The Democratic message will be consistent. It will be that Donald Trump represents a unique threat to the American Constitution, to American democracy, and everything we hold dear in this country. And thus, we must help him win the Republican primary. (laughs) So I can't improve on that. Charlie, over to you for yet another read, because you're a big fan of our other sponsor this episode, Ball and Branch Sheets. Indeed. Because, Rich, the holidays being the most exciting time of the year and our listeners wanting to enjoy them to the fullest, they will need to get their best sleep every night. I phrased that a little bit like the Second Amendment, didn't I? And it's easier than it sounds because all you need to get your best sleep every night are the softest, most luxurious organic cotton sheets from Ball and Branch. Ball and Branch sheets are made from the finest 100% organic cotton threads on earth, and they make a difference you can truly feel night after night, irrespective of whether you live in a hot place, as I do, or a cold place, as I used to. They are the best sheets I've ever slept on, which is why we sleep on them every night without fail. Ball and Branch products are made differently. They're made from the finest 100% organic cotton. They're free from toxins, pesticides, and harsh chemicals at every step of the production process. And they're made by artisans who earn the pay and the respect that they deserve. And don't worry, whatever size your mattress is, whatever style your bedroom is in, Ball and Branch has designs and colors for you. Their all-season sheets have an unmatched softness to start and get softer with every single wash. And best of all, even though you won't need it, Ball and Branch gives you a 30-night worry-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all offers. And because it's that holiday season, because it's the most exciting time of the year, the signature sheets now come wrapped and ready in a beautiful holiday gift box. Your gifts will therefore look as special as they feel. And if you send a loved one or a friend or even an enemy an unboxing experience, they'll never forget. They will thank you for all of Christmas. So to do all of that and more, and to get 20% off your first set of sheets and free shipping, For a limited time, you can use promo code EDITORS15 at checkout at ballandbranch.com. Even though it says EDITORS15, that is 20% for a limited time at ballandbranch.com, which is B-O-L-L-A-N-D branch.com. So, Jim, let's hit the next topic just really quickly. This character, Sam Britton. Brinton? Brinton. Brinton. uh, (laughs) This is Killer Rabbits. Killer Rabbits. Sam Brinton. He is a nuclear official, or was. I guess they've they've canned him, or they're being pressured to can them. Anyway, he's he turns out he likes to steal luggage. He's non-binary. It's been a big deal that he's non-binary. He wears uh, shirts with rainbow nuclear symbols on them. That's the way he was identified at one of these baggage carousels at the scene of the crime. So this is just kind of a, a one-off. Every administration gets a, uh, a low life or, or two, inevitably. Or this tells us something bigger about uh, progressivism or this administration? Well, we now have an answer to the question. 
how many times can you be charged with stealing luggage from a major airport uh, and still keep a security clearance and still work for the Biden administration? And the answer is two. The first one, <laughs> hey, apparently we all do it. It happens to everybody. You know, who hasn't walked off with somebody else's luggage and, you know, uh, decided to, hey, you know, this, you, that, that compulsion. Ooh, I really like that. Like, you know, it's, 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 a, it's like a lame lottery. You know, you better hope that person la- washed their, their clothes before they uh, decide yeah. to stop. Yeah, well, clearly this is, this is a sickness, right? I, I mean, uh, it's not like making off with jewelry from Tiffany's. I mean, it's probably the thrill <laughs> of the chase and you don't know what you're getting and it might be no valuables in there whatsoever and you're totally screwing over. I was going to say, you can else. imagine, you, you can envision being like a Cary Grant style debonair cat burglar breaking into a museum to steal an exotic jewel or maybe being George Clooney knocking off a casino with your, you know, 10 of your best friends and, you know, Ocean's Eleven. But stealing luggage, man, that's lame. So does this does tell us anything? Uh, look, I th- look, I think the uh, lesson a lot of people will want to take from this is that there were all kinds of red flags that Sam Brinton was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, not merely because of the gender binary identification, but by all kinds of ways in which he was dressing inappropriately, acting inappropriately, saying inappropriate things. And everyone chose to not pretend it because they believe, no, that's just the way he lives his lifestyle. Well, apparently mm-hmm. being a kleptomaniac is his lifestyle. And this is not the person you want to be in charge of, you know, keeping track of where, you know, nuclear waste is going. So Phil, Jim's answer is there, there was an effort to, to make this, this guy into, uh, uh, not to, look, to, to consider what should have been warning signs as uh, signs of, of how he's a great pioneer and groundbreaker and, and all the rest of it. You agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I think clearly it disrupts the vetting process when you want to make such a big deal of saying we're appointing the the first non-binary leader of our nuclear waste strategy. Finally. Finally. And so the, um, but I, I mean, I will just say additionally that, you know, I'm not saying theft is any is ever good but to me there's a a, it takes kind of a sociopath to steal somebody's luggage because it's not like stealing a a blouse from neiman marcus right like that's not gonna ruin somebody's vacation but if you just imagine like the hassle to deal with lost luggage and not having your luggage when you're traveling that's not coming back. Like you have a short window within to use the belongings that you packed. And if you don't use them in that time, like, and trying to acquire your lost luggage could eat up hours and hours on your vacation. So to me, it's just, it's not just kleptomania. It's just this, like you're a sociopath to do that to someone. Yeah. I didn't pay a lot of attention to this story because it just seems like a, a unpleasant from beginning to end. Just when I saw the headlines, though, I was assuming he is stealing like, luxury bags from some department store or something, not like just taking other people's luggage off the carousel. Charlie Cook. Well, I just hope that this is going to yield the same reaction that it would for anyone else. I don't want to see this person being defended because they are non-binary or whatever. I don't want to see them being punished more harshly for that either. But I would be irritated as a voter if somebody with a security clearance behaving in this way 
yielded all sorts of pieces in the newspapers about how it shows that America is intolerant or what you will, or defenses that would not be made in anyone else's case. Clearly, this guy is disturbed and has a, a problem, and he cannot work for nuclear security agencies as a result, and that should be the end of it. And if we truly believe in equality, that's exactly what will happen. So I haven't followed this closely enough to have an opinion. So let me just go straight to an NR Plus plug really quickly. Digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way around a meter paywall. Your way, if you sign up and log in to see many, many fewer ads, your way to dig deeper into our community, whether you want to comment on articles and blog posts or whether you want to be part of our private Facebook group or be invited to exclusive events with our writers and editors. And tis the season to uh, give gifts. So if, if you have uh, someone you, you want to give a good dose of right reason to every single day, give a gift subscription to NR Plus one way or the other. Hope you check it out. So let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim Garrity, you've been consumed with the logistics of the Christmas season. Yes. So I think maybe it was more difficult than usual this year because we've got usually about four weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas, but uh, nobody really wants to have a Christmas party the weekend after Thanksgiving. You're, you're kind of still recovering. You may have traveled. You kind of need that week to weekend to recharge your batteries. This year, Christmas Eve is December 24th. So if you're having a non-family get-together, You've really got, eh, you know, two good weekends. One of them was the past weekend. We had a few people over. We had a very nice time. But much more than in previous years, I noticed people had uh, children's concert recitals, children's Christmas plays. Uh, a couple of sporting events were scheduled for Saturday night on one of the Christmas weekends. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, there are only a few weekends when people can have their Christmas parties and their get-togethers. And, I, you know, you know, there's this one, then there's the next one. That's it. And for some reason, people are scheduling stuff. I think the world should lighten all, it should loosen up those weekends, let people get together with their friends, have some eggnog, have some uh, wassail and all this other stuff. We did have a nice time, but it just seems strange that I don't know whether this is like a post COVID thing where everybody's trying to cram as much into the holiday season as possible. But uh, it did seem like, man, oh man, everybody had like two or three things going on on last Saturday night. So, Phil, you're looking forward to and marking it on the calendar the day you are not going to go see Avatar. Yes, I am very eagerly and excitedly looking forward to not uh, seeing uh, Avatar. Um, the first movie was laughably terrible. and there, There's a bit more history um, and, and PTSD involved with this, which is that uh, the first Avatar movie I saw... Uh, hours after Ben Nelson caved and gave Harry Reid the 60th vote he needed to pass Obamacare. And I'd been covering that for months, and I was deeply despondent and was wandering the streets of D.C. and ended up in a theater. And in that sour mood, I had to spend three hours in Pandora, and um, I'm kind of not looking, I'm looking forward to not having to endure that again um, and go through the trauma of um, Ben Nelson's uh, cave as well as atrocious dialogue um, and um, over the top, uh, you know, 
hit you with uh, your like a ton of bricks, the obvious moral messaging in the movie. So Sarah, just a, a production note, you can clip that. We'll have Charlie here, but you can clip this out in editing like the next three minutes or so. Uh, Charlie, you went to see a Tennessee Titans versus <laughs> Jacksonville Jaguars game in Nashville, which for me was a little bit like uh, watching Avatar <laughs> following that game. Somehow a bunch of friends and I managed to time the first on-the-road Jaguars game that we'd got to see with maybe the best on-the-road Jaguars game they've played in a decade, perhaps even in the history of the franchise. (laughs) I'm not not leaning into this, Rich, just to annoy you, but it is an added bonus. This game, which I did not expect the Jaguars to win, really was remarkable. It was a blowout more than the score (laughs) reflected. It was Trevor Lawrence's career game. Lawrence became the first player in the history of the Jaguars with 300-plus passing yards, three or more passing touchdowns, and a rushing touchdown in a game. And I think proved himself to be the quarterback that the Jaguars have been looking for for two decades. And while I'm torturing people, maybe I'll add Jim into the equation as well, and that the Jets nearly had, had they not irresponsibly won that extra game in that season. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I was not just just shocked by this. I was uh, astonished by this win. Yeah, well, the the four turnovers helped. But the four turnovers were largely the result of excellent defense. It wasn't an accident. Maybe one of them was a poor throw by Tannehill, but one of them was a strip sack and the other two, they knocked the ball out of the Titans' hands. Um, this was a truly great experience. And um, yeah, Sarah, so I'm just, hoping, just to confirm, Sarah, we are definitely cutting this, right? <laughs> I'm hoping this marks the, the turning point for the Jaguars. Because look, I've been saying for a while, including on this podcast, that while the Jaguars are not a great team, they're a much better team than their record suggests. They're currently five and eight, but I mean, they could easily be eight and five. They could really be nine and four. They've been in every game except one. That was the week before against the Detroit Lions. And there is a very small possibility now, although I don't think this will happen, that they'll win the AFC South, um, which yesterday, uh, sorry, which Sunday um, enabled. So this was an absolutely terrific trip. And, um, and I hope to see more of them. So the other night I got in a car in New York, the back back of car, and the driver was listening to a game and I, I love sports. I like talking to people about sports and I figured, okay, it's not quite clear immediately what it is. Is this a Knicks game or a Nets game or maybe it's even hockey? I'm not, I'm not sure. And it turns out it was the Hawks, the Atlanta Hawks. And I asked the guy, well, you know, what do you, what do you, well, I asked him, what are you listening to? I said, the Hawks Bulls. And I was like, are you, you a Hawks fan? You know, he had had a New York accent that would seem unusual. He's like, no, I have a bet on this game. And uh, so I got invested in it with, with them. And it was like the, the final seconds of overtime and the Hawks were trailing um, by, uh, or I guess it was, it was tied. And this guy, I know nothing about the NBA, this guy, Trey Young, makes this 20-foot jumper with two seconds left 
And uh, so the Bulls are going to get the ball back with, with one second trailing by two. The game is over, right? This guy is bet on the Hawks. It's, it's, it's golden for him. And then uh, what do the Hawks do? You know, all you got to do is like, get out of the way while the Bulls inbound the pass and miss a half-court um, Hail Mary type shot. Instead, they foul the shooter. They foul the shooter with like less than a second left. He gets three free throws and he is, has an 89% um, free, free throw percentage. So uh, I've, I've started, yeah, I'm really into this now. I've started following it on my phone. I don't have the heart to tell the guy, you know, my phone is ahead of the serious broadcast. And the guy sinks all three of these shots and, and puts the bulls ahead. Uh, by one in totally incredible fashion. My phone, for, for whatever reason, it couldn't pick up the decimal point that was left in the game. You know, there was like 0.3 seconds left, but my phone had the bulls ahead with 0.0 seconds left. It hadn't quite said final. And then the, the Hawks inbound and uh, a, a guy, you know, jumps in the air and um, comp- makes makes a jump shot uh, at the buzzer and the Hawks win. So this is like seven points that have been scored like in the last two or maybe in the last one second. It's it's amazing. And I'm really uh, happy f- for this guy. But it turns out, he, yes, he bet the Hawks, but he bet the Hawks as a parlay with the Bucks. And the Bucks lost, oh, so it all, no. it, all turned, it all turned to ashes. So with that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity. Well, as usual, a lot of strong contenders, but I feel like I should be giving some more credit to the feature of Forgotten Fact Checks, a weekly column produced by the National Review News Desk, and this week written by Brittany Bernstein. Brittany just tears into all of the journalists and elected Democrats who dismissed the Twitter shadow banning, quote-unquote, conspiracy theory. Uh, and who basically right now have an enormous amount of egg on their faces. Uh, I think, you know, it's the holiday season. I think you just lay out a giant buffet table of crow and let all of these figures dig in because they've earned it. Phil Klein, what's your pick? Um, I have a pick from uh, Yuval Levin, Uh. um, which is uh, some lane duck warning signs. And uh, as always, Yuval is... always brilliant and he he basically walks through some of the difficulties in the current lame deck session and also next year's congress and how you have a very weird dynamic in which democrats control the white house and senate but not the house and while republicans control the house and only the house their majority is also very narrow much narrower than expected Um, And so this creates a lot of incentives and disincentives uh, uh, for next year, uh, which are affecting the lame duck Congress. And one thing that he in particularly warns about is he says the prospects for uh, renewing the debt ceiling uh, next year are pretty grim, maybe even grimmer than they were um, in 2011. So um, it's worth... uh, going through he just really walks everyone through the dynamics of this congress charlie cook well that was going to be mine but instead i will choose our editorial titled mayor adams is right which is about the mayor of new york city deciding that the time has come to remove mentally ill people from the streets this is actually an area on which i have become a little less libertarian over the past decade Uh, I was not entirely on board with the notion that people who are mentally ill are just different, but I've always been very squeamish about 
institutionalization. And I suppose I still am, but I've changed my mind on the underlying question, which is whether or not a society with the force of government has the right, maybe even responsibility to protect people for their own good. And I think New York has provided a solid example of what happens when you don't even try to do that. And so although the details will need hammering out, I think our editorial is correct. We do need a change of plan here. My pick is the piece that was mentioned earlier, Dan McLaughlin on the Michael Tomaski New Republic piece, arguing that Democrats should be rooting for Trump. This is just, it's just everything Dan does. It's just so packed with political wisdom. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Jim. Thanks to the Fire Express VPN and Ball and Branch Sheets. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.